0: Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Tech Gypsies podcast. I am Audrey Waters.
1: And I'm Kin Lane.
0: And for two weeks in a row, we're actually in Hermosa Beach.
1: It's been nice. Very nice. It,
0: it has been nice. It's, it was definitely very mellow and quiet here this week. Um, I am happy that we missed much of the summer. Um, and this is definitely moving into the season when it's much more enjoyable to live in Southern California.
1: Yeah, um, uh, it's, I don't know, it's just conducive to work for me. I think you and I have a, a well-laid-out uh, history of getting shit done here, and and it continues.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm glad to be back, although we're leaving Tuesday um, for more travel. But, oh well. Um, one, one thing of note I noticed as I... Um, went to press the record button. Um, Both of us use um, Apple's voice memo app to record this. We we sort of talk via Skype, but then we go in separate rooms and we each record on our iPhones using the voice memo app. But I don't know if you've updated to the new iOS this week. Did you do that?
1: Uh, I think I did, yeah.
0: You think you did. But I noticed that you can actually delete some of the annoying, useless apps that Apple never let you delete before, like the Stocks app and the Weather app and the Apple Watch app. So it was very exciting for me. I I have a folder of apps that I call Apple, which is usually full of, like, the bullshit apps that Apple wouldn't let you delete. But I'm very happy now that it's actually um down to ones that are useful like like this one.
1: Yeah, I I do recall doing it now cuz the first thing I did is went in and deleted some of those things.
0: <laughs> um yeah, so boy, we actually have a ton of stuff to conceivably, a ton of stuff conceivably to to talk about this week. Um where should we start?
1: Uh, I think we should start with uh the artificial intelligence is hard to see and the continued AI slash human shitstorm that is coming out of Facebook and but I think represents the wider space.
0: Yeah the, um, so as always we share the links to the stories that we talk about um, in the blog post so you can see you can find the links um, but what we're talking about is a piece written by Kate Crawford and Meredith Whitaker um, this week in which they respond in part to the news that Facebook had Opted to censor, I would say probably the most famous photo out of the Vietnam War. Right, this was the Pulitzer Prize-winning photo of the little girl naked um, fleeing away from the napalm um, being dropped on her on her village, and Facebook censored the photo, um, which. Uh, And has sort of defended this move very strangely, and of course there, you know, um, social networks also. Actually, not just social networks. All manner of sort of online web companies have these algorithmic practices by which they decide what content is should be pulled right sometimes it's pulled for copyright violation sometimes it's pulled because it's offensive um but this according to facebook was not actually an algorithmic decision it was a decision by a human that the photo was somehow offensive
1: yeah i mean i think this is this is one of the troubles of i mean the human i mean i guess both sides both sides, both sides of the coin you know are are potentially a problem is is if we don't have a well-informed human set of human curators who are, um, you know, able to understand sarcasm, able to uh, identify art, uh, able to identify interesting, uh, f- f- you know, f- photos from from um, you know what's going on, as well as like I guess if a photo's been doctored or changed, you know, these are going to continue to be problems. But I think. Um, I mean, what the article highlights for me is just how how these decisions are being made. They're being made daily and they're potentially impacting our lives every day and not just, uh, you know, censorship at a photo level like this, possibly all the way up to the election and, and other things that may, you know, influence how the world works.
0: Well, I think you just made a, a, a really important Point Because I think that what we see at Facebook is actually the sort of worst of both worlds, right? So we have at Facebook, we have a human editor who, I don't know, did not recognize this photo, did not understand the historical significance of this photo, didn't understand the implications of censoring the historical record, if you will surrounding this image. But Facebook is also a company that's hiring the similar sorts of people who are building algorithms that are going to make these same decisions. Of course, I mean algorithms are, algorithms are mathematical creations, but they're creations by humans using mathematical processes. So algorithms are a human decision Making process as well, they're just sort of abstracted to the sort of mathematical layer that then becomes sort of automated, but it still is a human decision that feeds the algorithm in the first place and if if Facebook doesn't hire humans that understand that you know to use the to use the um the metaphor that uh, that this article does if, if humans if the humans who work at Facebook cannot see this image. Right then, how can we expect them to develop artificial intelligence um, and algorithms that see this image and that recognize this image's significance? Um, and I think that that's sort of that's sort of the double-edged sword that we're that we're facing is that there, that there, that both the programmatic and the human um, com- human decision-making capabilities are sort of being done by folks who. Who don't have, um, who don't have knowledge, who don't have wisdom, who don't have sort of expertise, um, um, in in making these you know making these uh, decisions that then again sort of shape for us what we see, what we know in the real time news, but what we know about our history as well.
1: Well, I mean, I for me this you know emphasizes the the, the importance of what I would considered to be, you know, sensible and logical transparency and openness. And I say that because of other stories we have kind of bookmarked to talk about today around where openness and transparency can be really bad. But, you know, for me, this isn't like, hey, humans are the answer or algorithms are the answer. It's transparency and dialogue about, uh, you know, I mean, there's several problems going on here. I mean, curation quality curation i mean curation being reduced to like social bookmarking rather than actually domain expertise kind of you know level curation and then all the way to you know opening up the algorithms and one one quote in in this article uh that i highlighted was facebook is just one player in a complex ecology of algorithmic supplemented determinations with little external monitoring to see how decisions are made or what the effects might be. So this is just transparency into who your curators are, who your humans are, what they know, what they don't know, whether they're American or they're outsourced kind of meta- mechanical Turkish all the way to algorithmic transparency. What are the variables that go into this? What does it what is it output? Um, what are the inputs and outputs? and then just having a being able to have a grown-up discussion about what what these two areas are which we seem to not be able to do in in this climate for some reason but we should be able to open these up and and, and share um you know our thoughts on how these works but i find every time i try to you know talk about these things out in the open people get pretty defensive about algorithms i'm always fascinated how how much people need to stand up and defend that algorithms are good and humans are bad when, when I do open these up.
0: Isn't that funny? I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's a, an observation that I heard um, David Columbia make this week as well, is that whenever technology works, it's that technology is fucking amazing, right? It's always that the technology is amazing. And whenever the technology stumbles, it's always that its users are at fault, Right, so like the self-driving car, the Tesla self-driving car is amazing because Elon Musk is amazing and Tesla is amazing and artificial intelligence is amazing and Sebastian Thrun is amazing and Google is amazing. But when there's, a, when there's an accident, right, when there's an accident with an autonomous vehicle, it's that somehow it's the, <laughs> it's the user, it's the, it's the driver who, was, who made a mistake you know
1: yeah well it's the it's the amplification and the the absolutes that people like seem to take these two when i mean people i know loved you know think love to think that you hate technology when if someone really knows you, you you know they realize you hate humans just as much as you hate technology No, um but you know people love to kind of you know uh I don't know, they just, they love to polarize these things, and so when you try to have a conversation with a technologist about your algorithms, they're just super defensive about it, and super, which really is kind of my argument for the whole case behind this kind of, you know, logical, sensible transparency, is let's pull back the curtain and see what's going on and I can guarantee most of the time you're these people probably aren't being evil mad geniuses they're actually just being lazy and incompetent and most of the time super super greedy and And they're just hiding behind this 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 curtain so that they don't actually have to show all that. and they're going, "Oh, well, it's our secret sauce, it's our intellectual property. We can't share this. you know, But then you know, as these algorithms are increasingly impacting our elections in uh, impacting whether you're arrested or not, you know, policing, predictive policing, stuff like that, all the way up to um you know, how laws and regulations and things impact. These companies that that are that we use every day, um, we just need to open it up more and, and have a start having an adult conversations.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there were there there are several um, like I said several stories that we sort of are related to this. Um, one of the stories that I wanted to talk about this week was about um, work that the Campaign for Accountability did. Uh, So this is a government watchdog group that foiled a bunch of emails, um, thousands of pages of emails between and among executives at Google, officials at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, White House Office of Science and Technology um, surrounding the self-driving car. And, of course, the self-driving car was in the news this week in part because Uber um, did a big press push with the self-driving car, the autonomous vehicles that it's piloting in Pittsburgh. So most major news organizations had someone sit um, not behind the wheel, because <laughs> these cars that Uber is piloting actually have a, an Uber employee still, um, an Uber employee, not a freelancer that, Works in the sharing economy for the on the Uber plantation, but an Uber employee behind the wheel um, but but the Uber has made it very clear that their plan is to get rid of human drivers and to automate automate this sort of this process um, but the this, these uh, the emails that the campaign for accountability under um, highlighted really do underscore the very, very cozy relationship between the government. And Google, um, who I think you know, has really up till now been really the driving force for the self-driving car, um, and that it's very clear that sort of lobbying lobbying efforts gets the get the laws to look the way in which powerful corporations like Google want them to look, right? And so this is this is a this was a big push a big push by Google to sort of woo um, White House. Um, woo Obama administration officials in order to sort of shape the laws so that self-driving cars would become, uh, were were less heavily, well, so that they were legalized, I suppose I could even put it that far, so that they would become a, a an actual legal thing. And so I think that seeing, you know, seeing this sort of, this sort of relationship and knowing that knowing that that's a that's the way in which business is, is done, right? That's the way in which regulations get crafted and loosened all the time. I think it re- should remind us that as we move towards the sort of, again, move into the sort of algorithmic future that people are predicting for us, that we really have to be able to look under the hood. We can FOIA emails, but again, it gets really challenging to be able to FOIA this other sort of we can't FOIA an algorithm, right? So we—how are we going to be able to look under the hoods and see the ways in which decisions get made programmatically? We know how decisions are made um, in the government. We know how decisions are made in, um, because of our ability to FOIA. Um, but how are these—how are these private proprietary entities that are making decisions? How will we know? How will we know?
1: Well, I mean, this is this is. I think, I know a lot of people probably wonder what it is that I do as the API evangelist but um you know when I started API evangelist in 2010 I focus on uh, what I would consider you know transparency around business and the business of API so so as you're building mobile applications you're building things how do you you open things up behind and share that with your partners and in this case dev- third-party developers to build the next cool thing? And now it's circa 2010, my thinking. Along the way, you know, I've identified that equal to transparency in in business practices that um that can be positive, they also can be very negative, um, are the the politics of APIs and how APIs can open up data they can open up content and they can also be mapped to an algorithm and and describe the inputs and the outputs of that algorithm now an algorithm having an API does not make it transparent and does not make it good it but it does open a doorway for us to start having a, a conversation and it can be a very locked down secured Conversation where only certain people have access to audit to to see how it works to understand uh, the variables and the inputs and outputs. But this is like my latest thing that I'm pushing on. But what's really troubling and and uh, especially across these articles that you put up here today is is how these sensible and logical approaches get get diluted, watered down, um, and and changed, which regulation is one of these areas that I, f- I find super fascinating because you're either pro regulation or you're anti regulation. There's no like middle of the road. You know, businesses and 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 capitalist center centric folks love to say regulation is bad, government is bad. Well, that is until you get them to make laws that favor you. Then, hey, I'm all in on on regulation because it makes sense. You know, and so so it being so black and white. It's the same with algorithms. You're either pro algorithm or you're a, you're anti. You're either pro human or you're you think human. you're against math. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm anti math. You're anti math, but you know these conversations quickly get diluted. Bec- you know, it reminds me of like old school COINTEL Pro. How do you how do you you know how do you Dilute a movement, you know, an anti-war, anti-government actual movement by, you know, diluting it and and putting radicals and people, you know, into it. How do you do that when it comes to sensible regulatory conversations or sensible, uh, you know, revolving door conversations, as you pointed out, between Google and the government? And having been part of one of the latest waves of, I guess it's three years ago now, of tech to government and seeing a lot of these players and being on some of the back channels... Of the tech community Silicon Valley startup world moving to DC and going to these groups you know um, how are we going to show that there's these revolving doors and and how reg laws get made how contracts get you know uh, doled out to different companies how do we create transparencies in these processes because this is happening every day but um, You know, it seems like the doors are or the curtains are being pulled more and more over these. You know, being able to see and how these how these work.
0: Uh, I was just um, immediately sidetracked as as things seem to quickly do this election season, Um, thinking about uh, Donald Trump, um, some of the statements that he made this week about wanting to get rid of the FDA food police. You know, just you know this 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 idea that um, government oversight um, and the government should not have a rule in stopping us from eating poisoned food. But um, yeah, that was that's that's a tangent that I don't think we'd planned on going down.
1: Yeah, I mean I can't even imagine. I mean, shit's so scary and and dark right now when it comes to the way government a um, uh, government and industry perceives transparency, and this is under the Obama administration, which I think has pushed things forward somewhat, but I couldn't imagine what they'd be like under a, a Trump administration. I, I can't even go there. I mean, one of the articles I put up there um, is out of, uh, um, it's about Carl Malamud. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's kind of the OG open data pioneer. Um, you know, he's famously known for uh, you know, taking on standards, industry standards that industries um, are trying to keep private and keep um, proprietary because you know these are open industry standards
0: or because, government be- it's like government because they're copyrighted they're using yeah.
1: copyright to do this. Um, he's also famous for the the thing in Georgia where he's you know tried to share laws actual public laws, and and the information about him online and the state is suing you know saying that's they can't be sharing that openly and his whole thing is you know a law you know can't be a a law unless it's open and transparent and accessible and so, I mean, that's just really how, what a dark time we live in. And, and this is under uh, an Obama administration. So I'm not super hopeful that a Clinton administration is going to make this better. But I damn sure know that a Trump administration is going to really fucking spin us out, out into a, a dark direction.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, this week has been, I think this week has been very dark. Um, or uh, just thinking about some of the, the polling numbers Um have been have been super depressing. But um so I I I hesitate to to dwell there. Um I think nothing makes me want to sort of get off this podcast and go watch some football more than thinking about, about uh Trump. But um I want to touch base I wanna to touch on a couple of the stories that were in circulation um in the ed tech world that I think are that invoke some of these same Words and then also underscore some of these same crises that we're having, and that's a series of, of posts written about the question of open, and I think open uh, um, can be related to what you were talking about with transparency, right? Open publicness, transparency, and the role of institutions in either, um, furthering openness or actually sort of stifling, stifling openness. So Jim Groom gave a keynote. Um uh, the overselling of open um and Mike Caulfield responded um w- with a post in which he invoked suicidal tendencies um and then st- even downs weighed in as well, but the question was sort of for for, for all three of them are was sort of what's the role of the institutions right i mean there's a, there's a question when it comes to oer for example, open education resources are do oer um, have a better chance of being maintained, developed and maintained if they have institutional backing, and does having institutional backing um, and becoming institutionalized, right, does that somehow take away the edginess, the radicalness um, of of open practices? For, for Jim, for Jim Groom, he was sort of talking about the ways in which for him he felt as though open bec- was becoming less interesting, partially because it had become, in the last couple of years, so closely tied with MOOCs, sort of the sort of corporate notion of a of online education, corporatized, VC funded, vision of massively scaled, um, standardized um, lecture modules, and then OER, uh, again, um, or OER or textbooks, I should say. So for Jim, neither of these, sort of neither of these two sort of most popular, well known v- visions of versions of open. Uh, coincide with his vision of open uh, as being I mean I I think you know punk right and both um, and Mike weighed in um, on one hand and um, sort of with offering I think a bit of a defense of institutions and then Stephen Downs weighed in sort of lambasting, um, lambasting the role of institutions and arguing that that these sorts of things always have to take place outside or that institutions sort of stand in the way of openness and that um, by rejecting institutions or rejecting institutions will have a much more transformative future. And I mean I was really Not interested at all in in this debate, in part because, for me, I think that it overlooked um, what's, I think, what's important for institutions um, when one is marginalized. And uh, Mahabali actually wrote a post, I think, that underscored the way in which neither open, quote, quote, open, um, nor the sort of reliance on sort of a radical individual are really paths forward if you don't have a great deal of privilege already. Um, and I think that open, in terms of transparency, um, I do agree that there's sort of demands for it when, it's, when we're talking about public, public institutions, right, have a, have a responsibility to be open. But what do the rest of us have? And what can we actually do when we're actually sort of vulnerable, Physically vulnerable, digitally vulnerable, economically vulnerable. Um, how can we be open, and how can like what does it look like to live outside of an institution if one is um, if if one is vulnerable in that way? And so, to me, like that's a much more interesting, uh, much more interesting discussion, um, and of course, not surprisingly, raised by. Um Muslim woman writing from Egypt, um whereas the sort of three North American white guys debating about um, whether or not institutions are good or bad was sort of to me sort of a, a funny reminder of sort of what some of these conversations tend to look like in tech
1: yeah, I mean, I think that for me represents you know the the wider open conversation and how you know really we we can't have anything nice because of us. As white dudes specifically, you know, I'm talking about open, you know, open data and thinking of in terms of like, you know, Tim O'Reilly and and the kind of the web web two o and open government stuff. Um, open data and open content—how how ruined a lot of that? You know, those notions of of open are. I'm talking about open source, you know, and how how that whole game has been ruined by you know the loudest white guys, the the most corporate entities joining thousand-pound gorillas joining the conversation, and then all the way to open APIs, you know, which is very near and dear to my world, and and how you know open it me often means open for business. And you know I'm tracking on patents that are have specifically in the name of the patent, open API a patent for open APIs on the on the web, um, and and that being like acceptable behavior from institutions whether they're corporate or the U.S. Patent Office, um, in 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 what's you know considered open. And so really you know all of the we can't have anything nice. All these conversations around open content, open data, open source, open APIs. Um, just really get, you know, co-opted, dominated, diluted, polarized, charged so that it, it, it like I agree with Jim, you know, it, it becomes, uh, uh, you know, becomes boring and, and diluted and you don't want to be part of it. And it just it, it just takes it takes any meaningful conversations out of the equation and, and the, you know, the, the big players, the loudest players um, just are able to take control.
0: I mean, and I think that I think that that happens both within and outside of institutions. You know, I mean, I think that that's that's part of the problem with where these, you know, where our values lie, culturally. I mean, institutions. Uh, you know, this was part of the this was part of sort of the the this debate between uh, Downs and 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 Mike Caulfield was sort of what is an, what is a cultural problem and what is an institutional problem? And of course they're intertwined. I mean, they're inextricably intertwined. You can't, you can't talk about culture doesn't happen without institutions and, and institutions are sort of, sort of perpetuate, perpetuate, um, and preserve and, and change culture as well. So these, these, these things are sort of not, they are, they are interrelated. Um, but I think that, you know, when I think about what does it mean to be able to participate in, what does it mean to be able to sort of participate in any of these digital projects that, that you talked about or that, you know, I talked about sort of to to participate in open source, to participate on the open web, to participate in open um, educational resources, to participate in open data. Um, The the barriers to entry are at different levels, but but they are people who tend to sort of be privileged already, privileged to sort of be able to navigate, navigate the technologies, privileged to be able to to be able to sort of understand and identify what resources matter, um, and privilege to be able to be even even if you have a sort of the seat at the table, to be able to have a voice that is respected and recognized and valued. And some of that, um, you know, and those, you know, those those voices sit in bodies and different bodies are respected and valued in 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 different ways. And I think for some people, having an institutional having having an institution on their side is the only way in which, for now at least, under our current structure of society and under culture, having institutional backing is really the only way in which they can be recognized, and even so I think are often recognized um, lesser. And so I think the sort of you know, it's it's not a it's not a level playing field inside or outside of institutions. But I think that once we talk about things happening only outside of institutions, then we really are leaving things up to individuals. And in that rat race, um, it it looks it looks pretty different. I think if your body, if you're from if you come from a marginalized social position.
1: Yeah, I think that's the damaging. Uh, parts of some of these the the dilution and the polarization that that occurs is is when it comes to open data. You know I believe in in that institutions and government has an important role to play in this. I feel like commercial institutions have an important role to play in it. Um, but I also feel like you know uh, these they tend to own the lion's share of some of the conversations, whether it's because they have you know regu- regulatory enforcement or they have market share dominance. Um, there's, you know, so, so making sure it's an open conversation that, that as many representatives are at the table as possible, um, both in and out, I think is, is the answers. But, um, I sadly, like you said, most of these, these conversations get dominated by the, the strongest, whitest, uh, you know, uh, in control people and, and not everyone's at the table.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I made it through our list.
1: Yeah, I don't think we touched about the the someone is learning how to take down the
0: Internet. Oh, yes, let's end there. That is actually a super joyous and hopeful place to end on because someone is learning how to take down the Internet, and I can't wait. No, yeah, that's not they're
1: true. just someone's out that's there probe, probing, I guess, trying to figure out you know the where the weak spots are. Yeah, this
0: um, is a Bruce Schneier um, article on the Lawfare Lawfare blog, and it's very vague, um, very mysterious, and quite frightening if to think fully think through the implications.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one uh, one area I'm I'm tracking on real close. You know, I call it the cybersecurity theater, and trying to understand what's reality and what's not and and what's hype and what's diversion and um it's a fascinating fascinating world but it's also a super scary world because everyone's uh kind of setting the bar right now building their teams uh uh, increasing their compute capacity so that they can do these denial of service attacks on uh the bottlenecks and the and the, the under underpinnings of the web to see where they can take things down and this is the the new warfare, I guess, as everyone would like to think of it. So it's it's pretty scary stuff, but it's also pretty fascinating stuff. So
0: yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a really uh, you know. The, so the you know he he talks about you know that there's sort of this mysterious forces we don't know who we can guess perhaps that are sort of probing to see where are the critical vulnerabilities in in the infrastructure, right? The in the infrastructure of the internet. And so you know um, and, and but when we when we sort of run that through to its sort of logical conclusion, it's actually I mean I can joke and say it would be amazing you know it would be amazing to not have the the, the Twitter dumpster fire, right but like when we think about um, the critical vulnerabilities in the in the infrastructure of the internet, I mean we are talking about the the functioning of almost every piece of important um other pieces of important infrastructure um globally and so you know we are we have built we have built um castles in on the sand here and uh i think it's it's actually yeah that's a super dark and frightening place to leave it
1: well i think it opens up the conversation for next week uh i think we could uh maybe gather some news in this area. I've got endless endless things I can probe when it comes to this dark stuff, so I think it's a good place.
0: All right. Well, then till next week.
1: All right.